Before we get into Descartes, I want to tell you where we're going here. In this part of the podcast, I'm going to give you a quick overview of modern Western philosophy leading to my third and final point regarding what is necessary for analytics to function. And that third pillar is what I'm calling shared values. So to quickly recap, in order for analytics to work in a productive way, you need to have an environment or situation where the following three characteristics are present. First, conscious reflection. Second, democratic debate. And third, shared values. This third point regarding shared values is above all else the ultimate constraint on truth and is a topic we will arrive at here and return to in part two of this podcast. But in order to fully appreciate the ins and outs of shared values, we need to understand where Western philosophy landed with respect to analytics and logic, and I'll compare this to how the Indian and later Tibetan Buddhists landed when confronted with the same predicament. Okay, back to Descartes. By the time Descartes was born in 1596, analytic deductive thinking in Europe was both entirely entrenched in people's thinking and, somewhat paradoxically, under attack. It was entrenched because of the church, and it was under attack because of natural philosophers. Now, you might think this sounds a bit odd, since these days we associate logic with scientific thinkers, and many people will criticize religion for its logical contradictions. Now, this is a topic I'll spend more time discussing in part two of this podcast, but for now, I'll just say that the big three Abrahamic religions, which is to say Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, are all, when you compare them with other religions, very much aligned to logical thinking. And so over the years, theologians working on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church would rely directly on the organon, Aristotle's organon, to take the upper hand in debates with critics, infidels, or non-believers. And critical philosophers very much operated within the same playbook. And if you think about it, the theologians had the upper hand because they could point to biblical revelations or received facts, if you will, and base their arguments on that bedrock whereas the natural philosophers didn't have anything so authoritative to rest their arguments on beyond what could be observed with the naked eye. In many ways, it was logic itself that, that allowed the philosophers to break through the theologians' defenses during the 13th century, thereby leading to a medieval renaissance and setting the stage for more serious scientific inquiry. Again, I'll explain what happened here in detail in, the, in part two of this two-part podcast. By the middle of the 16th century, the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus would publish his groundbreaking book called On the Revolutions of the Celestial Spheres. This book introduced the idea of a non-heliocentric world, which is to say Copernicus demonstrated that the sun does not revolve around the earth, but in fact the earth revolves around the sun. And Copernicus demonstrated this by showing how his formulas for predicting the position of planets was more accurate than those of the philosopher Ptolemy, who was a 2nd century CE Greco-Roman astronomer. And that he was the kind of the go-to um, uh, philosopher or natural philosopher when it came to understanding astronomy. And so while Copernicus's claims seemed absurd at first, its usefulness could not be ignored. So from then on, many philosophers were beginning to doubt the power of Aristotelian logic, which is to say deductive analytical thinking, as the end-all and be-all for discovering truth. But as we shall see, and this is still very much the case, deductive analytical thinking and logic is a stubborn thing in Western culture and cannot so easily be knocked off its perch. And the simple reason for this goes back to its inherent usefulness, even if it does happen to mislead you hundreds or thousands of years. 
uh, I should say, four hundreds or thousands of years. Getting back to Descartes, it would be René Descartes who would very much reinvigorate philosophers' passions around the use of deductive logic as the ultimate way for knowing the universe. And there is good reason why Descartes took up this mantle. Before Descartes was a philosopher, he was a mathematician with a focus on geometry. In fact, Descartes uh, had the biggest impact on geometry since Euclid. His big idea was to rationalize everything into a grid, which in turn allowed algebra to to describe geometry. And once you convert geometry into algebra, it allows for higher levels of abstraction. The limitation with geometry, of course, is that you're stuck in three dimensions, like a cube or or a sphere is, is basically as far as you can go. But by converting the math into algebra, you can have as many dimensions as you want, even if you can't visualize them. And so it takes geometry into this whole new direction where you can start asking much more sophisticated questions, and then by drawing on axioms, you can easily answer them. So this whole new universe opens up. And because you could no longer visualize these higher orders, it's no longer possible to even consider a visual or intuitive proof. So you're entirely reliant on the axiomatic method to guide you here. And hence, this is why we refer to Cartesian geometry as analytic geometry. It is hard to exaggerate the impact Descartes had on mathematics. Most most mathematics that came after Descartes very much built on his ideas, so it's not hard to see how Descartes would have mem- would have would be mesmerized in a way by his own brilliance, and come to see deductive analytical logic as the ultimate foundation of reality. Put another way, throughout the course of Western history, logic always seems to find a way to reinvent itself as the sum of truth. And so, so to put his stake in the ground, Descartes pivoted to philosophy. While Descartes is best remembered for his proclamation, I think, therefore I am, which he was better known um, by his contemporaries for, was his take, but he was actually better known um, by his contemporaries for his take on what's known as the ontological argument, which is essentially an argument for the existence of God based solely on logic. Now, you don't hear the ontological argument used much these days. If somebody wants to convince you through reason that there is a God, they will either invoke the cosmological argument, which basically asks the question, you know, why is there something instead of nothing? And the other argument you'll often hear these days, uh, probably even more so, is the design argument, which asks why the universe appears to be fine-tuned for life. The ontological argument, on the other hand, makes no such reference to nature, and it simply argues along the lines of a syllogism that goes something like this. Existence is perfection, and God is perfection, therefore God must exist. Now, Descartes was not the first to make this argument. That would be the 11th century Benedictine bishop Anselm of Canterbury. But Descartes would be the first person in 500 years after Anselm to pick up the ontological argument. And by putting his stake in the ground on the side of logic over empiricism empiricism, as the best way to know God, Descartes became the first person in a new camp of philosophers known as the rationalists. But there was a second camp that was forming around the works of Francis Bacon, whom I spoke about earlier as being the first modern philosopher to describe the scientific method. And so Bacon would also be the first modern philosopher to fall into the other camp known as the empiricists. Now, to be clear, both Bacon and Descartes were devout believers in God. The question that we're fighting over is how does God reveal himself? 
through logic and math um, or directly through the natural world. So that was really like the, the question that they were sort of struggling for is like, do we find God through math or do we find God through science? And Bacon believed that empirical science was the only way to truly understand God because he felt that humans were susceptible to believing in illusions, which he referred to as idols. And because Bacon believed our minds were, were more like um, funhouse mirrors, which warped the true na nature of reality. And so scientific measurement and experimentation was really the only way to overcome our so-called idols. As, as Bacon famously said, quote, let compounds be dissolved, end quote, which is basically the same thing that the Chinese Moist philosopher Yin Wen was saying when he urged people to rid themselves of, quote, enclosures, uh, end quote, through argument. So over the years, and especially through the 18th century, both the rationalist and empiricist camps began to grow and take sides in an ever-increasing debate between logic and empiricism. On the rationalist side, we have Descartes, we have the German philosopher and mathematician Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, and the Dutch philosopher Baruch Spinoza. Uh, oh yes, and also the French philosopher uh, Nicolas Malebranche, all of whom had a strong mathematical background. On the empiricist side, we have Francis Bacon, the English philosopher John Locke, the Irish philosopher George, George Berkeley, and the Scottish philosopher David Hume. Now, it may seem at first glance that the rational camp and the empiricist camp are some kind of battle between math and science, but if you take a closer look, there's another pattern that begins to emerge that will continue even to the present day. And that with the empiricists, what the empiricists all seem to have in common is that the human mind itself is both the problem and the solution to scientific inquiry. Now, to, to, just to explain what I mean here, I'll run through those empiricists to give you their big ideas so you, you, can, you can get a sense of, um, of where I'm coming from. So first is Francis Bacon, who already explained that the problem with science is our belief in idols, which create this sort of funhouse mirror effect. Then we have John Locke, whose big ideas were around the concept of consciousness being that thing that holds us together throughout our lives, as well as the idea he called tabula rasa, which is this idea that the mind was a blank slate with no preconceived notions or ideas, and it's really up to us how we wish to form concepts. Uh, so this was, in a way, a rebuttal of Francis Bacon's idols. Because Locke didn't believe the mind had to be a, a funhouse mirror and that it would depend on the person and their experiences. Uh, next, we have George Berkeley, who held some of the most radical views about the nature of reality. And he believed that reality is made up of concepts or ideas, as he put it, and that such concepts are created by God. But those concepts only come into being when we perceive them and we ourselves do not exist until we are perceived. Now, if you recall from earlier, the Indian Buddhist philosopher Dignaga believed the exact opposite of what Berkeley was saying, since Dignaga believed concepts were human constructs and not divine constructs, which are expressed through um, the, quote, useful fiction of language, and are the only thing that is objectively real are particulars. So that's what Dignaga thought. And of course, particulars are, are these infinitesimally small particles, like the Higgs boson particle, for example. So what Berkeley believed is really known as representationalism and is in fact just another form of realism because it assumes that there are these objective concepts or ideas that exist, even though they only exist in our minds, according to Berkeley. Now, following Berkeley, 
we have David Hume, who is inspired by Berkeley's thinking around the mind being the primary driver of everything. But Hume doesn't buy into this idea that reality only plays out in our mind. Hume definitely believed in an external reality. Hume's big idea is called the science of man. And the science of man is a bit like a fusion of Bacon's, Locke's, and Berkeley's ideas. And what Hume believed was that all the ideas originated from either impressions from senses or the memories of impressions from senses. In other words, Hume believed in an external reality that was always being filtered through our minds, but the way in which our mind minds processes this reality will change over time as new things and experience are impressed upon our minds. Hume's other big idea was a rejection of so-called moral rationalism, and Hume believed that we are motivated by our emotions and will concoct reasons after the fact, um, after we've essentially made the decision, so, so as to justify that decision. This idea is best embodied in the following quotation. Hume writes, quote, whether tis by means of our ideas or impressions we distinguish betwixt vice and virtue and pronounce an action blamable or praiseworthy, end quote. But the reason most people are familiar um, with Hume is um, the thing that best sums up Hume's thinking is this quote. Quote, reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to be any in any other office than to serve and obey them, end quote. And so that's just a very brief summary of the major f figures in the empiricist camp and their thoughts on the human mind. Now, the rationalists also had theories about the mind, but they were of a slightly different nature. Descartes believed in the concept known as dualism, which is still a popular idea, and which sees the human mind as being distinct from the brain and body. You're probably familiar with the phrase cogito ergo sum, or I think therefore I am, which I've already mentioned. And this kind of speaks to the idea of dualism. But the quote that best sums up dualism is this one from his book, Discourse on the Method, where he writes, quote, Next, I examined attentively what I was. I saw that while I could pretend that I had no body and that there was no world and no place for me to be in, I could not for all that pretend that I did not exist. I saw on the contrary that the from, that from the mere fact that I thought of doubting the truth of other things, it followed quite evidently and certainly that I existed. Whereas, if I had merely ceased thinking, even if everything else I had ever imagined had been true, I should have had no reason to believe that I existed. From this I knew I was a substance whose whole essence or nature is simply to think, and which does not require any place or depend on any material thing in order to exist." End quote. Interestingly, Aristotle said more or less the same thing and believed that our intellect is the, quote, God within us, because he felt that the mind was the only part of us that is truly sovereign. However, unlike Aristotle, who saw the divine as a figurative term, Descartes believed that our minds were literally forged by God who imbues us with a kind of moral blueprint. The later rationalist philosopher Nicholas Malebranche built on Descartes' dualism and introduced the concept of occasionalism, which basically says that God and, and the divine ideas are the first object of our intelligence, and that intuition of God is the first act of our intelligence. To sum up, the rationalists tend to see the mind as something divine, whereas the empiricists generally saw the mind as something that had the potential to get to the truth but was bogged down by emotions and our limited ability to perceive the natural world. 
Eventually, a sort of compromise was finally achieved. And the person who squared this circle was none other than the German philosopher Immanuel Kant in his pivotal book called The Critique of Pure Reason. And it is Critique of Pure Reason that led to a massive pivot, possibly the biggest pivot in the history of Western philosophy. Kant's big idea here is what he called transcendental realism. And what Kant argued at the center of transcendental realism is that we have minds which may or may not be separate from the human body. It's irrelevant to Kant. But regardless of how we got our mind, whether from God or from nature, the fact is it is pre-configured with certain concepts like space and time and our ability to reason that ultimately lead us back to asking questions like, how did the universe begin? Or is there a soul? Or does God exist? But unfortunately, because these are metaphysical questions and cannot be tested empirically, they're off the table as far as philosophers are concerned and should only be matters for theologians to discuss. However, for questions pertaining to the physical world, empiricism is a perfectly valid approach for exploring the universe as, um, as was mathematics. Now, a big part of the reason Kant's idea was accepted to the extent that it was, was that Kant came from the rationalist camp, from the rationalist camp and was a big fan of, of Leibniz's work. However, Kant had read Berkeley and Hume and felt that they were very much onto something in their own right. But what made Kant's idea so powerful unto itself was it embraced the human mind as being central to all philosophical questions and how we conceive of philosophy itself, but left open the possibility of pretty much anything you want to believe. So even when Kant was being attacked by his, for his ideas, including transcendental idealism, he was being attacked using the language of transcendental idealism. So, for example, the 20th century Scottish philosopher Alistair MacIntyre criticized Kant's ideas as being informed by Newton's conception of the universe, which doesn't tell us anything about how the universe came into being. But modern scientists have since provided us answers to some of these questions, which 18th century philosophers never conceived as being po possible to answer. So, for example, we know that the universe started with a Big Bang. We also know from quantum theory of indefinite causal order that there need not be a distinction between cause and effect. The point being here is that while it's all well and good that we can attack any of Kant's specific ideas, his general idea of transcendental idealism is so concise and useful that we have yet to find, have yet to drop it as a mode of understanding philosophy. In fact, Kant's idea is very much central to this podcast, since I'm arguing that the Western embrace of deductive analytical thinking is essentially a recipe for thinking imprinted in our minds, um, in our own minds through our own culture. And it, so it would seem as though the rationalists and empiricists would just make up and get along and they would all live in philosophical harmony. So that was kind of the hope that would happen after uh, Kant's uh, critique of pure reason. Well, of course, this can't be the case, because let's not forget what David Hume said about all these passions guiding our reason. And so, well, well it seemed as though the big debate between the rationalists and the empiricists had come to an end with Kant, a new, more pr pronounced divide instead opened up by the end of the 19th century. And in many ways, the new divide was spurred by Kant himself. The reason is that in addition to transcendental idealism, Another major idea that Kant presented, possibly as a sop to the rationalists, but more likely because he believed it to be true, 
was the concept of a synthetic syllogism, which he distinguished from Aristotle's analytic syllogism. And what Kant had to say about um, this was that he felt that Aristotle's logic was, quote, the only completed science, but that it was too restrictive. And he felt that if that syllogisms were too bogged down by the particulars of language and that we could have more syllogisms and more apply more logic if it wasn't so bound into language. And to give you an example of a synthetic syllogism, he would say, um, first, Bob is a bachelor. Then Wendy knows all unmarried men, uh, with the conclusion being, therefore, Wendy knows Bob. And as you can see, there's no middle term that connects the first two terms uh, or the first two premises. It's only our understanding that the bachelor and unmarried men are what connects the two sentences because of our knowledge of the real world. And by the way, as you've been able to tell, consynthetic syllogism is basically the same as uh, Avayava syllogisms going back to the Naya Sutras from 600 BCE or earlier. So even though Kant came out of the rationalist school, he was seen by the descendants of the rationalists of somebody who didn't grasp logic to begin with. And so two new camps would begin to form. First, the analytic camp, which was similar to the old rationalist camp, but had shed itself from anything even remotely airy-fairy like mental concepts and ethics and empirical science. And that camp would eventually be led by Bertrand Russell. Then you have the continental side, which did not have any common theme apart from the fact that they did not feel constrained by a need to prove everything logically. And they also had more of a psychological bent to them. The main school of philosophy that emerged from the continental camp was led by Edmund Herschel and is known as phenomenology. And phenomenologists explore ideas related to experience, consciousness, and perception. The continental side also had other philosophical movements like idealism and existentialism, but the movements were more of a mixed bag of projects than what was going on the, on the analytical side of the analytical continental divide. And the reason it's called the analytic continental divide was that the main anchor of the analytic side came to be the English professor and mathematician Bertrand Russell and his peers at Cambridge University. Whereas all the philosophers that were, that were in the empiricist tradition tended to be based in continental Europe. But in reality, there was no clean ge geographical divide and philosophers on both sides were both in Britain and in continental Europe. While Bertrand Russell was the primary champion of the analytical school of thought, he was not the originator. The originator was the German linguist and mathematician Gottlob Frege. And Gottlob Frege's big idea was something called predicate logic, which more or less shows, uh, which is more or less how logic is, is studied by present day philosophers. So what's the difference between Aristotle's logic and Frege's logic? Well, it all comes down to ambiguities around la language. You see, the problem with Aristotle's logic, what we now call term logic, is that everything hinges on this middle term. And just to remind you, the middle term is the term that links propositions to form the conclusion or links premises. So going back to the classic syllogism, all men are mortal, Socrates is a, is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. The middle term here is men, which links the universal affirmative, all men are mortal, to the particular affirmative, Socrates is a man, to draw our conclusions, um, Socrates is mortal. So while that syllogism is pretty clear and nobody will dispute it, 
Once you start getting into more complicated language, these ambiguities start to creep in and confuse everything. Now, Aristotle was well aware of this problem, which is why three out of the six books of the Organon are concerned with language, specifically the book on interpretation, uh, prior analytics, and sophistical refutation are all about language. But Freak was not the first person to refine Aristotle's approach with respect to language. A later group of Greek philosophers known as the Stoics, who are now more known for their philosophy of life than for logic, replaced Aristotle's term logic with what we now call propositional logic. And this was done in the 3rd century BCE by the Stoic philosopher um, uh, Chrysippus. Interestingly, the Stoics' texts were lost for most of time, and the very same approach was independently reinvented by the 12th century French philosopher and theologian Peter Abelard. Abelard, I mean. So if I take our example, syllogism, and rewrite it in propositional logic, it goes something like this. If something is a man, then it is mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So you can see it's a little bit different, but not too different from the, um, from the term logic. Now, Frigga felt that this was too mushy and pointed to what he called the subject predicate problem. Namely, how can we be sure that the word man used in the first proposition is in fact linked to the second proposition? So instead of trying to tighten up the language like what Aristotle and the Stoics did, instead what Frigga did is abandon natural language altogether and replaced it with mathematical functions. And in fact, he simply turned deductive logic into what we would now recognize as a functional computer programming language, which is just a style of programming. So, for example, if you've ever heard of languages like, like Lisp or Scheme or F-sharp or Scala, then you'll know what I'm talking about. But for everyone else, I'll give you an example to show you what I mean. If you want to take our syllogism that concludes with Socrates being mortal, we would do it like this. We would define a function called isPerson, which takes an argument um, uh, that would be an object. And we would define that function to be true when Socrates is fed into the function. Then we would define a function called isMortal, which, is, um, uh, which, which, which returns true when it is fed with the value isPerson equals true. Putting it all together, we have our innermost function is mortal, is person, Socrates, equals true, equals true. And I realize it, it probably doesn't make sense when I'm speaking it out loud like this because I'm basically talking computer code. Um, but this approach to logic is known as predicate logic. And if you take an introduction to logic course, you will learn predicate logic. It's also why predicate logic tends to be cross-listed as both a mathematics and a philosophy course in, in universities. Frege didn't stop there. He went on to show how arithmetic, like addition, multiplication, and division, could be represented in terms of predicate logic, and from there be used to prove basic axioms that, quite frankly, nobody thought needed proving. So he literally proved 1 plus 1 equals 2 in terms of formal logic for the first time. Although it turns out his proof was flawed. As trivial as it may, se as trivial as it may seem, it was a huge epiphany since logical axioms boil everything down to a truth or a falsehood, or rather a binary value, which is to say the simplest type of axiom that you can have. The English mathematician and philosopher Bertrand Russell was quite taken by Frege's insights and believed that this was a whole new day for philosophy, 
and that philosophy and mathematics would ultimately merge into a single discipline, and that single discipline would eventually explain the entire universe. However, by the end of the 20th century, Frege had lost interest in predicate logic, and so Russell instead decided to, to embark on his project with the help of another English mathematician and philosopher whose name was Alfred North Whitehead. And together, Russell and Whitehead embarked on a major project to place all mathematical axioms on a foundation of logic. And the result of this project was a three-volume, 2,000-page book known as Principia Mathematica. To give you a sense of how thorough they were, they actually you know, went back to what Frege had tried and failed at, and they spent 86 pages proving that 1 plus 1 does indeed equal 2. And over the next few, and that proof, by the way, has stood the test of time. Over the next few years, they were able to prove almost all major mathematical axioms which were consistent with one another using predicate uh, logic. However, they did run into a problem that which they couldn't seem to get around. The problem really came down to a branch of mathematics called set theory. And in set theory, it is permitted for a set to refer back to itself, which leads to a kind of chicken and egg problem. The problem led to a paradox known as Russell's paradox, but eventually a solution was discovered that involved a new axiom known as the axiom of reducibility. But unlike the other axioms in Principia Mathematica, the axiom of reducibility could not be proven through deductive logic. But Russell felt that this axiom, which essentially eliminated any possibility of a chicken and egg situation, was so intuitive that it was not necessary to prove. By its second and final edition, which was published in 1927, Russell and Whitehead accomplished a great deal and put to rest many debates regarding the consistency of mathematical axioms. So it was overall an extraordinary achievement. However, it did not succeed at its original goal of showing that all mathematics could be proven deductively. Nevertheless, the analytic side of the analytic continental divide was growing in numbers and becoming more hard-line. A new philosophy known as logicism emerged from this, where, where once again, similar to Descartes, saw logic as the way forward. Logicism then sprung off another branch known as logical positivism, which took logicism even further and asserted that, the, that only concretely verifiable facts could be considered truth statements and everything else was meaningless. By extension, the logical positivists felt that all art, religion, politics, you name it, um, were meaningless since they could not be formulated in a logically concrete manner. This dogmatic view of truth held by the logical positivists was often referred to as scientism by its critics. However, however, these days, you will often hear the word scientism used as a way of dismissing science that you just happen not to like. For example, you'll often hear Hollywood actors being accused of scientism whenever they bring up global warming, which is quite funny since logical positivists and Hollywood stars don't normally mingle with one another. But it would make for an interesting dinner party to attend, I'm sure. One of the most notable influences of the logical positivism movement was the Austrian philosopher and mathematician Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein, like Gottlob Frege, was interested in both language and logic and wanted to build on Frege's work from a linguistic, from a linguistic perspective. So he wrote a book called uh, Tract Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, 
which described a system for mapping logic in, in, um, into a linguistic system so as to, in Wittgenstein's words, separate sense from nonsense. And in this book, Wittgenstein put down seven basic rules for mapping everything in, in the world into a logical system. So rule number one, the world is all that is the case. Number two, what is the case, a fact, is the existence of states of affairs. Number three, a logical picture of facts is a thought. Number four, a thought is a proposition with sense. Number five, a proposition is a truth function of elementary propositions. An elementary proposition is a truth function of itself. Number six, the general form of a truth function is, four squiggly symbols, this is the general form of a proposition. Number seven, what we cannot speak about, we must pass over in silence. Okay, so those are the seven rules. To summarize, Wittgenstein believed that all propositions should be either tautologies or contradictions. In other words, all language should be explicitly consistent or explicitly inconsistent with no gray areas. Well, the logical positivists adored this book and took it to be the final word on language. And for most for the most part, this movement around logic seemed to be going really well, and there was a growing belief that one day all physics would be explained through a logical model, and humanity would eventually arrive at some objective standard um, of the meaning of life, like kind of like the number 42 in Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, but, but even better, like, like 43 or 11. Yes, that's a lame joke in case you're wondering. Anyway, by the year 1953, all of this would come crashing down. Aristotle's so-called psalm of truth would be entirely put to bed and would from thenceforward simply be another niche within Western philosophy, which is now basically just a big smorgasbord of profound, in my opinion, useful ideas. But analytics and logic and rationalism would no longer play the central role it always had. And that's probably a good thing. So how did this, this, hap this big crash happen? Well, I already mentioned that there were cracks in Principia Mathematica, but the Cracks were, in fact, um, bigger than they first appeared. A Czech mathematician and philosopher by the name of, by the name of Kurt Gödel observed that Russell, in all his haste to prove out arithmetic and number theory using the predicate logic developed by Gottlob Frege, never bothered to actually prove Frege's own formulation of logic. So Gödel made clear the very foundation of Principia Mathematica was itself unproven. But what Goodall is best known for is his um, incompleteness theorem, which was released in 1931 and is still something philosophers discuss to this day. If you've ever heard of the 1970s book Goodall, Escher, and Bach by Douglas Hofstetter, you'll know what I'm talking about here. In essence, Goodall demonstrated that there was a fundamental chicken and egg problem with all mathematics. He did this by showing that you could not prove that the arithmetic axioms like addition and multiplication um, could not be proven to be consistent by simply relying on addition and, and multiplication operators. Rather, the only way to prove that these axioms are consistent would be to do what Russell did and choose a different set of axioms to prove them from. But of course, you quickly run into a sort of an infinite regress problem where it's like turtles all the way down, so to speak, because for every set of axioms you want to prove, you need a higher um, order set to do the proving with. And then to prove those higher order axioms, you then need higher, higher order axioms, and so on and so on ad infinitum. 
Gödel's incompleteness theorem would later be further generalized by the Polish philosopher and mathematician Alfred Tarski, who in 1936 published his, quote, undefinability theorem, which built on Gödel's work to show that for any formal system of semantics, which is to say language, there is no way of demonstrating that that system is logically consistent. That is to say, there is that, that there are no logical contradictions. So what Tarski was implying basically was that Wittgenstein's idea around language and logic were built on false premises. There could never be an objectively logical language. However, at the time Tarski's paper had been released, Wittgenstein had already checked out of academia and was working as a, as a school teacher. And the reason why Wittgenstein did that was that after publishing uh, Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, he felt his work was done with respect to logic and that he was no longer interested in the subject. But while he was out of academia, he had a change of heart and returned to Cambridge to begin a new phase of his career. Wittgenstein's feelings about the earlier book had changed dramatically, and he was much more interested in ordinary language and psychology at this point. This all culminated in a book called Philosophical Investigations, that he completed in 1945, but decided to withdraw the, the final manuscript for reasons that I'll explain momentarily, and then continue to work on it until his death in 1951. In 1953, Philosophical Investigations was published posthumously and would effectively be the final death, bro, final death blow for rationalism as the backbone of Western philosophy. Wittgenstein believed that, the, that most philosophical problems arise from the confused use of language and cannot be solved by adding additional facts or inventing new theories, but should instead be solved through clarifying language. He also believed, similar to the, to the Indian Vedics, um, that standalone words had no meaning and always required context. But he also felt that sentences also required context. So, for example, the sentence, just perfect, could mean that you think something has no flaws or, or defects, or it could refer to something of beauty, or it could be a way of saying stop, um, like when somebody's pouring a cup of tea, or it could be used ironically, like something you might say after spilling a cup, a cup of coffee in your tea, you're like, oh, just perfect. So as Wittgenstein liked to say, uh, meaning is use. That was, that was kind of his philosophy or, uh, of language. Uh, and if there was a big idea that Wittgenstein was presenting in philosophical investigations, it could be best summarized by his slogan, quote, philosophical problems arise when language goes on holiday, end quote. But there was an even bigger idea that Wittgenstein wanted people to come away with, and that is the idea that there should never be a grand philosophy, but rather there are many little philosophies that inhabit our lives, whether we are conscious of them or not, and that the more conscious we are of these subconscious philosophies, the fewer problems in communication we will have. So let me give you some examples of what he means here. If there's an outbreak of a highly contagious disease like SARS, uh, which greatly impacted Toronto where I live in, you would be wise to take on a philosophy of scientism and follow the orders of healthcare professionals, because that philosophy will give you the best odds of survival in those circumstances. If, on the other hand, you're trying to console someone who's distressed and at a loss for words or is getting their words mixed up, you'll be more of a nominalist and try to apply your understanding of how the other person might be interpreting something by looking at their body language and facial expressions. And if you're dealing with a waiter in a restaurant who doesn't speak your language, 
You might want to think like an invariantist, which is more like how a lawyer or a computer thinks, and recite the menu item number as opposed to its name. That's why you'll often see numbered menus in non-English cuisine restaurants like in sushi restaurants or Indian restaurants. But on the other hand, if a child comes crying to you and you start to interrogate the child like an invariantist lawyer, picking on their every word to get to the root of the problem, you will probably further distress the child. And so to sum up, what Wittgenstein is saying is that the more mindful of these shifting philosophies we are, the more we are aware of what philosophy we are operating under and the fewer problems with philosophy in general we will have. Now, it's been said that philosophical investigations represented the, the biggest pivot in Western philosophy since Immanuel Kant's critique of pure reason. But why is this? Well, to be clear, Wittgenstein was building on the work of other philosophers like J.L. Austin, who developed what is known as ordinary language philosophy. And Austin's big idea is something called speech acts, which is very similar to the idea of contextualism that Wittgenstein argues for in philosophical investigations. But the reason why Wittgenstein and not Austin shook things up so much was that Wittgenstein was a major figure in the rationalist camp and had the respect of Bertrand Russell. And so we can begin to understand why Wittgenstein was cagey about publishing his book while he was still alive. And it is in large part due to the fact that both philosophical investigations is somewhat cryptic and the fact that Wittgenstein could never utter a single word to corrupt his own creation, that philosophical investigations sort of became a new cause celebre for philosophers to rally around. But this didn't stop Bertrand Russell from saying that he felt that Wittgenstein had betrayed him and the entire community of analytical philosophers. Even the Austrian-American philosopher Karl Popper, who's best known for his big idea that for something to be considered scientific, it must be falsifiable, but who is also critical of the logical positivists and scientism, Popper was, um, was also deeply upset by Wick, what Wittgenstein had written and went on to say that Wittgenstein had, quote, trivialized all of philosophy. But others, of course, felt that Wittgenstein had done Western philosophy a great service by breaking the back of, of analytical philosophy. Putting aside Wittgenstein, um, putting Wittgenstein aside for a moment, there was also a third reason uh, why there was an appetite for such a pivot. And so the third reason uh, why analytical philosophy was knocked from its perch was due to World War II, the Holocaust, and Nazism. And this is because Hitler and the Nazis were seen to justify many of their most extreme positions for ostensibly logical reasons. Hitler's so-called final solution was always predicated on logic. And so after World War II, there was an emotional repulsion or at least skepticism to this hard line of logic. But of course, logic and reason are simply too useful to throw out. And so even before World War II, there was an alternative movement in the U.S. that our friend Charles Sanders Peirce, as in the guy who gave us the best definition of the scientific method and who also invented the logic gate, um, also had another big idea. And perhaps what he is best known for, actually, is this idea of what he referred to as logical pragmatism. Now, what logical pragmatism is, is the idea that we should um, weigh truths not based on some autonomous analytical reasoning like the logical positivists would have us do, but rather Pierce felt that there had to be some kind of a cash value to the truths and that truths could, should, should be able, you should be able to put them to some kind of practical use. Now, this sounds very pragmatic, but if you stop to think about what he's saying here, you'll quickly realize that this is not a straightforward way of, that there's, there's actually no straightforward way of determining 
what the cash value of any logical conclusion is. So let me give you an example. Most pure mathematicians can't tell you the cash value of any of their of what any of their work is. And for a long time, it didn't appear that most pure mathematics have had any cash value. But then in the late 1970s, uh, Rivest, Shamir, and Adelman showed, um, showed how some number theory could be used to create, and this is essentially a branch of pure mathematics, could be used to create what we now know as uh, public key encryption. And you might even recognize their initials RSA. And all e-commerce and all secure connections require public key encryption to function. And so you can say that this simple innovation has probably generated more money than the combined salaries of all pure mathematicians who ever lived combined. So clearly Pierce's philosophy of pragmatism is short-sighted. However, if we drill down a level and look at Pierce's inspiration, his advice makes more sense. You see, Pierce, like many thinkers uh, at the turn of the 20th century, were very much inspired by Darwin's um, theory of evolution by natural selection. But you might recall, recall that Darwin's succinct description of his theory is, quote, survival of the fittest, end quote. Now, while that sounds like what Pierce is saying, and it is, what Darwin, what Darwin was, um, what the, Darwin phrased survival of the fittest in a very deliberate way. And he purposely phrased it to create a circular definition. So if you ask Darwin who survives, the answer is the fittest. But then if we ask what constitutes being fit, then the answer is whoever survives. So in other words, there is no value beyond what survives. And so, of course, this just takes us back to chicken and egg problem. That's not unlike what Gödel and Tarski were describing in their groundbreaking papers. But let's pause for a moment here and we can see that there is a pattern with science and chicken and egg problems. Namely, it would seem as though the vast majority of mathematics, science, and engineering is explicitly working um, around or outside of chicken and egg problems, and will even dismiss the very idea of a chicken and egg problem as not really being worthwhile of, serf of serious pursuit. There's a famous quote from the New Zealand um, British physicist Ernest Rutherford, who's best known for his famous gold foil experiments where he detected the atomic nucleus for the first time, which kicked off nuclear physics. And his famous quote, which you may have heard, is, quote, Physics is the only real science. The rest are just stamp collecting, end quote. And so we see this attitude pervasive throughout not just physics, but also in computer science, engineering, uh, chemistry, and biochemistry. On the other hand, disciplines like economics, sociology, and psychology are generally dismissed as soft sciences, even though researchers and practitioners in those disciplines are taking just as many hard measures as their counterparts are in the hard sciences. The difference is in the, the soft sciences is the feedback loop. The chicken and egg, that, that, that sort of chicken and egg dynamic, if you will, is always at the very center of the soft sciences. Furthermore, it is often not possible due to legal or economic reasons to set up controlled experiments in the soft sciences. So economists, for example, are constantly on the lookout for what are known as natural experiments, which are basically just situations like liquidity crises, um, which can be studied for, for short and long-term impacts. So to sum up, the soft sciences are mainly centered around feedback loops. 
So analytical deductive thinking based on generalized theories can only get you so far. But this does not mean that they're not working in the spirit of science, but rather the power of deduction simply carries less weight because the feedback because feedback sorry because feedback loops are so inherent to all the soft sciences. The point I'm, I'm making here is that Pierce's pragmatism is not as far off from the scientism of the logical positivists as you might think. And the reason is that Pierce was, although not the believer in the more hardline scientism, was a believer in softer logicism, which always puts logic in charge, and then goes back to human judgment to assess the, the uh, usefulness of logical insights. And so again, this is why Wittgenstein's Philosophical Investigations is such an important book, because it completely turns logic on its head and shows how misleading formal logic and analytic deductive thinking can be in the vast majority of situations we find ourselves in. Now, although Wittgenstein made it clear that we should abandon grand theories in general, what he was really talking about was our obsession with deductive logic and analytical philosophy. He wasn't saying we should abandon the tool, rather that we should only treat it as one of many tools. Unfortunately, because analytical, analytical philosophy is effectively a subconscious philosophy, or you could even call it a meta-religion in the West, uh, many people, in particular those who are devout followers or of any of the Abrahamic religions like Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, will, will actually protest this point of view and denigrate it as being mushy relativism, which is only a hop, skip, and a jump from self-destructive nihilism. So, you know, logic is something that a lot of people just sort of hold on to for kind of sanity, I guess you could say. Now, instead of rebutting this argument, I just want to show how its entire premise is very much the culmination of Western philosophy. And I want to show you how the premise itself is deeply dishonest. And this brings me to the third and final pillar of what analytics needs in order um, to achieve truth, and that is shared values. So to recap, all three pillars of what is required to make analytics useful and in turn arrive at valid truth are first, conscious reflection, second, democratic debate, and third, sh shared values. So again, with conscious reflection, at the very least, we should be able to write things down so that we can reflect on information and identify contradictions. We need democratic debate to ensure diversity of perspectives sh can shake out the best conclusions. And finally, we need shared values so that we are working off a common set of axioms where we draw our truths from. And the most basic level, and at the most basic level, that means we need to be speaking the same language, or at least communicate through some kind of common symbology. But this third point about shared values really tells you the most important thing about the concept of truth, and that it is always a relative concept. And so all those people who get up in arms about capital T truth are really just relatives themselves who happen to be working off of their own axioms. And generally, when people get really up in arms about those axioms, we often refer to this as religion, whether it's a conventional religion like Christianity or just being religious about technology or art or whatever. However, because we have been attached to this concept of capital T truth for so long, it's harder for us to see it this way. So I want to circle back to our earlier discussion about Indian logic. As you may recall, I told you that the 6th century Indian Buddhist philosopher Dignaga had brought about a Kantian turn in Buddhist philosophy through his refinements to logic and the fact that he was able to demonstrate using deductive reasoning that language was nothing more than a useful fiction for thinking, communicating, and, communicating, and navigating the world. And I had told you 
that following his death, there was a big debate and schism that opened up um, among the uh, the middle way or Madhyaka Buddhists. And this this um, schism is known as the Svatantrika Prasangika distinction. And essentially, the Svatantrika side of the debate believed that logic could be used as a means of truth discovery as long as everyone agrees ahead of time on the key assertions that are being made as well as the defining characteristics of an object. Whereas the Svatantrika side of the debate rejected the idea of agreeing upon common characteristics and they thought that um, logic uh, um, from there was was only good for arguing um, the nature of existence or nothingness and felt that logic really only has one lesson to teach us and that it, that language is a fiction. So they didn't so the Svatantrika side just didn't see logic as having any usefulness other than teaching us one big lesson um, because they felt that you'd always get into this sort of reducto ad absurdum um, situation and you wouldn't really learn anything. Uh, but if Digdaga were around, he probably would have not taken such a hard line. After all, he, he himself said that language was a useful fiction, not a useless one. And as you may recall from earlier, I compared Dignaga's predecessor, Vasubandhu, the guy who codified Indian, the Indian syllogism known as the, the Triupa, and I compared Dignaga to Kant, who showed how much of what we believe to be objective reality is just subjective creations that have only taken the illusion of objectivity. Taking this analogy further, we can compare the 6th century CE Buddhist philosopher Bhaviveka to Ludwig Wittgenstein. Now, we don't know much about Bhaviveka's background apart from the fact that he came from somewhere in North India. And Bhaviveka's big contribution was to salvage Vasubandhu and Dignaga's work by defending the usefulness of deductive analytical reasoning as a useful tool for getting to truth. Now, here's how Bhaviveka put it. In Bhaviveka's view, there were two varieties of truth. There is first and foremost what he referred to as the, quote, world transcending truth or the ultimate truth in itself, which he believed was ineffable, was ineffable and could not be put into words. And then he believed in a second kind of truth, which he referred to as, quote, pure worldly wisdom or, quote, approximate truth. But Bhaviveka believed that this approximate truth could in fact point us back to the ultimate truth. And in terms of the problem surrounding language that Dignaga pointed out, Bhaviveka's solution to this problem was to determine for the sake of inquiry and debate what the agreed upon characteristics of an object are. For example, a chair should be something with a flat surface that you can sit on. And if all parties in the room agree on the character characteristics, then it is acceptable to apply analytical deductive reasoning to infer to inferring hidden or deeper truths. Now, this all seems reasonable what Bhaviveka is saying here, but, but opposing philosophers like Chandra Kirti took an opposing view and felt that one should never rely on autonomous logic under any circumstances when debating Buddhist matters. So Bhaviveka um, was on the Svatantika side of the debate and um, Svatantika, by the way, translates to autonomous, as in using autonomous logic to find the truth. And Chandra Kirti was on the Prasangika side of the debate. And Prasangika translates to consequence, as in the consequences are what we should be paying attention to. Now, this Svatantika-Prasangika debate has been going on and off for centuries. 
and actually moved from India to Tibet. Often it, it, it is debated as to whether or not there was even a debate to begin with, or if the older debates were simply misunderstandings. At any rate, um, where it stands now, the 14th Dalai Lama, who's still the current Dalai Lama, is, and he's hence still the spiritual leader of the Buddhists around the world, actually did comment on this Fatantrika Prasangika distinction back in the late 1990s. And he rather deftly stated that all credible Buddhist teachers of the various systems of Buddhist philosophy can, ar- can all arrive at the same intended point of realization. However, he went on to say that you cannot establish this particular fact through autonomous logic. Now, I'm finally getting to my main point when it comes to Western thinking. If we look at the history of Western logic versus Buddhist logic, and I've only given you a very tiny sampling, uh, and by the way, if you're very skeptical of my characterization, I urge you to continue researching this on on your own, um, because you'll see there's a very clear pattern that emerges. Um, if If we look at China, and if we look at the Mohists and the Disputers, we can see that logic was seen by the Qin Dynasty as being potentially disharmonious, in the case of uh, Deng Ji, who used it for uh, litigation, um, and then and this they felt that it challenged government authority, um, and so the Chinese saw it as either challenging, like Deng Ji, or it was seen as at best a form of entertainment, as in the case of Gongsun Long, or more typically as a type of trivial pub- puzzle, which is how the Taoist scholars saw Hui Shi and his paradoxes. So they kind of saw it as either annoying or amusing. Now, if we look at the Indian Vedics and later the Buddhists, we can see that analytics and logic came to be seen as a useful tool, but with only uh, limited use. But when we look at the Western philosophical tradition, we can see that analytics and logic were seen as the tool and the psalm of truth. And this impulse has been so strong throughout the Western philosophical tradition that it has taken the better part of 500 years for philosophers who have been skeptical of this tool to finally dethrone it. And even then, when we stack up people like Gödel and Tarski and Wittgenstein, who had the utmost respect for the analytical philosopher community, that even then there was reluctance to see logic as anything short, uh, short of the tool. And so while in some sense Western philosophy, philosophy has moved on, and is in many important ways more consistent with present-day Buddhism than historical Western philosophy, we still feel this constant pull towards analytically-centric thinking um, as the end-all and be-all of capital T truth. But there's one last thing I want to tell you before we move on to um, the next section of this podcast. Um, I've told you about how Master Moji and the Moists got into philosophy because they wanted to bring about universal love. And I've told you that Vasubandhu wanted to reduce suffering and believed that by defining the rules of debate and logic would help to eliminate deceptive arguments that led to suffering. And I've loosely compared both of these figures to Aristotle. But what about Aristotle himself? Like, what was his philosophy? Well, I mentioned that the main driver for writing the Organon was to take on the sophists who he felt were playing games with words um, and were arguing false truths. And while that's all well and good, that doesn't tell us what he actually believed in himself. It's also worth pointing out that Aristotle wrote on nearly every subject you can think of and was also responsible for inventing the entire branch of science, that is, biology, 
which comes from the Greek word bio, that means life. Uh, so yeah, that Aristotle did that. Um, so what, what was Aristotle's own personal philosophy then? Well, according to contemporary historians, while philosopher was indeed a systematic thinker, he did not in fact have any philosophy of his own, and instead he was known as an aporiast, um, from the Greek word aporia, which means puzzlement. In other words, Aristotle was basically obsessed with solving puzzles. He loved nothing more than taking on a knotty problem and then attacking it in a systematic way to break it down into pieces. And this is something I, I can greatly relate to. I, I also uh, really enjoy the you know occasional game or puzzle, but I will say that I also find it both astonishing and a tad depressing that at the very core of the entirety of Western philosophy, and the same philosophy which nearly everyone embraces uh, subconsciously at some level to this day was was ultimately formulated by uh, a puzzle master. And so to quickly summarize my point here, ever since Aristotle put down the organon, deductive analytical thinking or simply logic has been regarded as the tool dominant for making any sort of reasoned argument. However, it was only after Copernicus's theories were backed up by Galileo's observations that the world of science and philosophy began to shift from a heavily rationalist way of reasoning to a more empirical form of reasoning. And it is only relatively recently, since the 1950s, that logic itself has been deprecated in the sphere of Western philosophy from the tool to simply one of many tools. Whereas in India, logic was a tool that had always been used and developed over time. But in India, logic was never elevated above perception in the same way it has been in the West.